The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. What does faith look like? So we know from the scriptures that faith is non-negotiable in our relationship with God. The Apostle Paul argues in Romans chapter 4 that, it's with, that we can't receive the grace of God um, without faith. Receiving grace of God depends on faith. And there's a well-known verse in Hebrews chapter 11 that says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we need faith. But what does faith look like? With our modern technologies, we can capture images of organs and substances and systems deep within our bodies, even ones that are invisible to the naked eye. But faith can't be seen that way. When the writer of Hebrews was seeking to challenge and encourage those to whom he wrote to continue in faith while enduring suffering, what he did for them was to provide them with examples of their ancestors who were commended for their faith. Those examples make faith visible. For the month of August, we're going to focus on the stories of four people who are highlighted in Hebrews 11 in a series we've entitled Faith Illustrated. In the coming weeks, we'll walk alongside Rahab and Moses and Jephthah. Today, we'll begin with Gideon. We want to do this not just so that we can imitate their examples, but so that we can get a clearer view of the God who calls us to faith on a daily basis in and through his son, Jesus. So if I were to correlate this series we're doing to our DNA, it's evidently about be, become like Jesus. But because becoming is a matter of beholding, we're going to find we're going to be pulled towards A, adore or God. Listen to Hebrews 11, 32 to 34. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I mean, that sounds impressive, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's the stuff of action heroes. But the portrait of Gideon in the book of Judges is a lot more detailed than that snapshot in Hebrews. And as we'll come to see, it isn't very flattering in many ways. But we who are flesh and blood don't need comic book heroes. We're better served by seeing faith in people who are embarrassingly similar to us. But more than that, we need to see and be transformed by the patience and faithfulness of Gideon's God. So please turn with me to Judges chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, and Bibles are available if you'd like one, just stick your hand up and Nikki will bring one for you. In those Bibles, it's page 192. The story we're, we're covering this morning spans chapters 6 and 7. So we won't read it all. Hopefully many of you have done that in the lead up to this service. What we're going to do is walk through the story like a play that unfolds in four acts. 
And as we do so, I'll read sections of the text and we'll get into the story. So let's begin then with Act 1, under Midian's thumb. Our focus is verses 1 through 10. Look at verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The book of Judges records the downward spiral of the Israelites after they had entered and taken possession of the land that God had promised to them. Over and over the same pattern plays out. The children of Israel defaulted on their end of the covenant. God handed them over to their enemies. They cried out because of their suffering. God raised up a deliverer to save his people. They rescued, they turned back to God, and they enjoy a season of rest while the deliverer rules over them. But inevitably, they forget about God again, and the cycle starts once more. In this cycle, the oppressor was Midian. Now, the Midianites were not this kind of organized military force that was trying to impose political rule on Israel. They, were, they and their allies were, were a desert tribe. They were more like raiders, but there were thousands upon thousands of them, and they used their numbers and their strengths to their advantage. A man on foot was no match for a man mounted on a camel. So what the Midianites would do is they would invade the most fertile land in Israel uh, once the crops had been planted, and they'd ravage the land. They'd take what they wanted for themselves, allow their animals to graze on the rest, and then they'd take away the means of production from the Israelites, their own animals. Every year, for seven years, this happened. And every year at harvest time, the, these Israelites became refugees in their own country. They gave up their homes and they headed for the hills, living in caves and holes and hiding in the mountains where they couldn't be chased as easily by men on camels. And the text says in verse 6, that Israel was brought low by the Midianite oppression, poverty-stricken and emotionally bankrupt. And in their agony, they cried out to the Lord for help. And God answered them. But it was not the answer anyone was expecting. Instead of salvation, he sent a sermon. You see, the Israelites were under the impression that Midian was their real problem. They thought that if they could only get out from under the thumb of Midian, then all would be well. But Midian's thumb was an extension of God's hand of discipline and judgment. The suffering they were experiencing was the presenting symptom, but the disease was idolatry. So God gave Israel what they needed most first, a diagnosis. They needed to again become aware of who God was, who they were, and why this was happening to them. The summary of the sermon begins in verse 8. Look at it with me in your Bibles. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you, and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Over and over, God calls their attention to his unmerited saving acts. I led you, I delivered you, I am the Lord your God. He reminded them of the covenant, the special relationship he had initiated with them. He didn't save them because they were committed to him. 
They chose to commit themselves to him because he saved them. Surely God's demands that his people be faithful to him are reasonable. The sermon ends with God's indictment. But you have not obeyed my voice. They were guilty of worshipping the gods of the people that were surrounding them. Looking to those gods for their help. Depending on them instead of the God who rescued them. It's hard for us to come face to face with the kind of suffering we're seeing in this text and accept it as God's gracious work. But it's also hard for, those, for us as those who have trusted Jesus to face our own suffering and see God's love in it. For many of us, even if we've been walking with God for years upon years, we wonder, did I do something to deserve this? Did I step out of God's will? No, self-examination can be a good and godly thing. But the New Testament is clear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been decisively delivered from God's wrath. Jesus took the suffering we deserved on the cross. We are no longer his enemies. We are his children. That means that when we suffer, we suffer as children of God. We will experience his discipline when we sin, but also in order that we might grow. God, who is sovereign over the whole universe, is at work in and through our suffering to make us more like his son, Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but often when I'm suffering, when I'm going through difficult circumstances, all I want God to do is to stop that suffering. I don't really care what he wants to teach me about himself or about myself. I just need the pain to stop. But God has different priorities than we do. Suffering is one of the ways in which God gets our attention so that he can speak to us. As Dale Ralph Davis counsels, understanding God's ways of holiness is more important than the absence of pain. One of the kindest things God does for us is to bring us under the criticism of his word to expose the reasons for our helplessness and misery. He does this by the preaching, counsel, or reading of his word. So drape up equal kindness. Just want you guys to make that correlation as we go forward. You know? A part of trusting God is learning to give our attention to his word even when we are in pain. So the psalmist can say in Psalm 119, 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And even Jesus sang that song. Hebrews 5, 8 tells us, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. My friend, is it time for you to embrace your enrollment in the school of suffering? The message that God sent his people revealed that their cry for help was not a cry of repentance. They were praying to him, but they had not turned from worshiping idols. So what is God going to do? You're kind of anticipating now that this, this sermon ends right here. You have not obeyed my voice and a big lick coming now. But God is going to show them mercy. So he sets out to raise up a deliverer, which brings us to act two. And then a hero comes along. Look with me at verse 11. 
Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now this is not exactly a grand entrance for Gideon. Grain was normally beat out on the top of a hill so that the wind could catch the chaff and blow it away from the ears of grain. But such were the times, and such was the man, that Gideon was doing this in a hole instead of on a hill. Which makes what the angel says when he eventually approaches Gideon entirely unexpected. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now Gideon would have been forgiven for looking over his shoulder to see who else is in the wine press here with me doing this, who this angel is talking to. Even the most gracious commentator I read bluntly put it this way. Gideon is a most unheroic hero. But the angel is clearly speaking to him, and Gideon joins in in what is a tremendously significant conversation. There are battles to come, but in this conversation, we begin to see the central conflict of this whole story unfold. Will Gideon trust God? For his part in the conversation, Gideon first implicates God, claiming that God is at fault for the suffering of his people. And then, when commissioned to save his people, he makes excuses as to why he's too weak to deliver anyone. Yet throughout their interaction, the angel of the Lord is gently insistent. The Lord is with you. Do I not send you? I will be with you. And when Gideon asks for a sign of this newfound fellowship with God, the angel of the Lord graciously obliges and waits for him to prepare what was an elaborate meal. It would have taken several hours. The angel has him arrange the meal on a rock. And he touches the rock with the tip of his staff. And all of a sudden, flame erupts and consumes the meal. And then just as suddenly, the angel disappears. And Gideon is terrified. He knows now that he has encountered God. And he expects to die. Because he is sinful and God is holy. But God speaks words of peace and reassurance to him. And Gideon builds an altar and he calls it Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. In all this interaction, here's what I want you to see. God graciously finds Gideon and calls him into a personal relationship. It's important to recognize that side of things. Gideon is not just chosen for a mission. He's not merely a tool in God's hands. God has chosen to be near to Gideon and to reveal his character to him. Gideon is being called to faith in God, to trust and obey God, despite how the circumstances that he and his people are in appear to him, and despite how he feels about himself. Sometimes, when we've finally figured out what's going on in our hearts, we can end up prizing it and protecting it as if our perspective is a matter of identity. But faith calls us out of ourselves. Faith does not see circumstances or self as sovereign. Faith sees God as sovereign. It believes God's word despite what natural eyes see. It relies on God rather than self. And it is God who is going to make all the difference in our unheroic hero. Amen. Daniel Block notes, As in the case of Moses, the fearful Gideon is to be transformed into the deliverer of his people, by the powerful presence of God. Gideon is beginning to believe God, but that faith will be tested. Look down at verse 25. That night, 
the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the, the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here. Now, this command wasn't a warm-up. It wasn't some sort of practice meet before the main event. It wasn't an arbitrary test of loyalty. This was a costly command to perform surgery to remove the cancer afflicting the whole nation from the life of his own family and his own town. Israel worshipped idols along with the true God. Now, Israel, no, no, Jehovah was officially their God. I mean, they went to the services on the weekend, as it were. But the rest of the time, they sought the favor of the gods of the people around them, buying into the false promises that these gods could grant them great harvests and many children and success in business. But God will not share his people with other gods. He demands exclusivity. He makes that demand with us too. And for us, removing idols will never be a one-time action. We're constantly attracted to the gods around us. Some of them are even good gifts from our Heavenly Father. We think we'll be satisfied by success or by money or by marriage or a happier one, which usually involves our spouse changing, or by more likes or by more comfort, and the list is endless. John Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Any of and all of the things that we look to for our well-being can function as idols in our lives, demanding our allegiance. But God constantly calls us and brings us back to himself. And that's the comforting truth that we were singing earlier. Still, we often go astray. We chase the world, forget your grace, but you have never failed to bring us back. Gideon obeyed God's command, under the cover of night, mind you. But as one commentator puts it, evidently obedience was essential and heroism optional. And that comforts me too. The time for conflict with Midian was drawing near. The Midianites and their allies were gathering again to ravage the land. Now Gideon must gather his own army and gather himself. And that brings us to Act 3, which we'll entitle 300. The action is starting to build. God is on the move. Gideon is now empowered by the Spirit, and the effect is immediate and obvious. So much so that the same men who, after he pulled down the altar of Baal in his town, who wanted to kill him, are now rallying to his side to fight alongside him. And he sounds the war cry, and three neighboring tribes respond to the summons, and they gather an army of 32,000 men. But Gideon feels a need for another conversation with God. Look at verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Now, this is a well-known section of this story, at least the legend of it, if not the details. And much has been said about it. Some people think that we should imitate Gideon and that setting up little tests is a legitimate way to discern and to seek guidance from God. Others criticize Gideon for his lack of faith. 
Now, you can tell if you keep looking at the account that Gideon realizes he's pushing the boundaries when after God responds to his first request, he apologetically asks for a second sign in verse 39. Gideon is testing, and biblically speaking, that's dangerous ground. So what do we do with fleeces? What we need to do here is pay careful attention to the text. The key phrase in this prayer is repeated twice. It's right at the end of verse 36 and again at the end of verse 37. As you have said. Contrary to popular opinion, Gideon wasn't seeking guidance from God. He had already received God's word and knew exactly what God's will was. So what should we make of Gideon's requests? Were they revealing sinful unbelief? Were they the cry of a man who was trying to be faithful to God but needed reassurance? I've read vastly differing opinions from several commentators, and if you want mine, I no longer have one. But there's something much more important that is crystal clear right here in this text. God is tremendously patient with his anxious children. He doesn't rebuke or condemn Gideon. He condescends. He comes down to meet us where we are and brings us on from there. He's determined to show us mercy and to show mercy to others through us despite our doubts. Now, this story has a lot of twists and turns, but we've re reached what's probably the most unexpected one. The army has been mustered and Gideon is reassured that God is going to do just as he said he would. They're positioned strategically on the high ground above where their enemies have gathered. All systems go, right? No. God is not satisfied with the fighting force. Apparently, it's too big. No, and this has nothing to do with military strategy. God's reason is clear. Look at verse 2 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God was ready to deliver his people, but he wanted it to be abundantly clear to them when he did it that he had done it. Now, if you check the figures in the next chapter, you'll see that the Midianite army, numbering 135,000, was already much bigger than the force Gideon had gathered. They were already outnumbered about four to one. But God apparently was not satisfied with those odds. So firstly, Gideon is instructed to invite anyone who's scared of facing one to four odds to head back home. And 22,000 men gladly oblige. Great. I mean, this could pan out well, maybe. Gideon have 10,000 bad men now. Not quite. God now has him perform a water drinking test to separate the remaining soldiers into two groups, and then he sends home 9,700 men who were willing to fight. 300 soldiers remain. God was not trying to identify the Navy SEALs in their midst. 300 is not a magic number, and this is not Sparta. 300 was a weak fighting force, weak by God's design. This is Dale Ralph Davis again. Because of the tendency of God's people to glorify their own efforts, to trust in their proven methods, to credit their own contributions, to think well of their cleverness, Yahweh frequently insists that his people be reduced to utter helplessness so that they must recognize that their deliverance can only be chalked up to Yahweh's power 
and mercy. When God saves, he does not share his glory with anyone. He refuses to be credited with the assist when he's the one doing all the work. He thunders in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. And Tim Keller rightly observes, as soon as we begin to believe that we deserve credit for rescuing or delivering ourselves, we take away glory from God that he deserves. God has not changed. And this story is our story. We were harassed and helpless, snared by the idols of this world and under God's condemnation, unable to save ourselves and oblivious to what our real problem was. But God raised up a deliverer, and through that one man, through his son Jesus Christ, won a decisive victory that has delivered us to live gladly under his gracious rule. That's why when we gather, we sing. Because he has saved us and captured our hearts. And singing is one of the ways that he has prescribed to bring him glory. That's why we're so determined to sing of him and of how he has saved us. Because singing those songs will help us not to forget that he deserves all the glory for our salvation. As Ephesians 1 says over and over as it talks about our salvation, it is all to the praise of his glory. So 300 men camped on the hill for the night, looking down at a force that now outnumbered them by 450 to 1, to the praise of his glory. Our story has one more act. Let's title this one, The Attack on Midian. Once more, God speaks to Gideon in the night. Look at verses 9 to 11 of chapter 7 with me. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. What a kind and patient God we serve. This time, right on the verge of battle, God gives Gideon the promise of victory again. Victory is assured, but he goes further. Gideon doesn't even need to voice his fear. God invites him to take a journey of assurance, right down to the edge of the enemy's camp, mind you. But he recommends that he take some company. And Gideon, scared as he is, obeys. He gets Pura, his servant, and the two men make their way down to the Midianite camp in the dead of night. And the text describes the scene in verse 12. The army was covering the valley like locusts, and their camels were like the sand of the seashore. I mean, that situation looked bad from afar. What could Gideon possibly discover here in the reach of danger that would strengthen him to attack this army? God was orchestrating circumstances in a way only he can. Gideon and Pura arrived at the Midianite camp at the precise location and moment to overhear one soldier relating a dream to another, a weird dream about a cake of barley which rolls down the hill and hits a tent and knocks it down. 
And the second soldier, even more bizarrely, has the interpretation for the dream. God had given the Midianites into the hand of Gideon. The man whom God found beating out grain in a wine press came down the hill to the tent of Midian to hear God's promise of victory in the mouth of idolaters. And finally, Gideon believes that promise with his whole heart. Gideon's best moment is in verse 15. And he's yet to fight the battle. Gideon had accused God. He had made excuses. He had doubted and he had tested. Now at last, he believes God's promise and he worships. He's flat out on the ground beside the tents of the largest enemy fighting force he's ever seen, giving glory to God. Last August, when we had, we had an interest meeting right here at the golf club for people who wanted to learn more about our plans for Grace Family Church. And I spoke then about my family's intention to move to live in this area. I mean, I, and this process of planting this church has taken years. So we've had years to plan and to dream and to wonder and to pray. And a part of the vision that we believe that God gave us is living right here so that we can serve right here. We want Caymanas Estate to become the epicenter of what God is doing through this local church. So we've been on the lookout for a place to rent for months. And it seems like God has finally opened the door for that. So a couple of weeks ago, we went to visit some friends who are looking to move back to town. And we're talking to them about renting their place in the, in the coming months. And we stood outside of the house and I'm looking down one street that way, another street that way, another street in front of me, at house after house, and the fear inside me started to rise. I looked and every door was closed, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't see how our presence is going to open any of these doors. And I felt my insufficiency for the task acutely. I'm not courageous enough. I don't have the right personality. I don't make friends with strangers easily enough. Uh, I, I'm just not good at gathering men. So I stood there feeling intimidated, crying out to God in my heart that he would just cause the love of Jesus to affect these people and that he'd be pleased to do that through us. I'm still scared and I expect I'll continue to be. But what I do and what I will do is to fix my eyes on God's presence with us and God's promise to us. When Jesus sent us to make disciples, he promised to be with us just like God did for Gideon. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Jesus said in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. My faith is probably more like Gideon's than I like to admit to myself or to others. But like Gideon, we will continue to walk in obedience with growing confidence in God's presence and promise. The battle has finally arrived. Gideon makes his way back to his camp and now he's filled with faith and he wakes his feeble force of 300 and says, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Now he's showing resourcefulness. He arranges the 300 into companies of 100, three companies of 100, and they have trumpets and they have torches covered by jars, and Gideon takes the lead. 
He says, do as I do. And at the right time, while the shift is changing in the Midianite camp, the Israelite soldiers make their presence felt with deafening trumpet blasts and sudden light, appearing in the night to be a much greater force than they actually were. But it wasn't Gideon's tactics that won the day. Look at verses 21 and 22. God caused the Midianite army to turn on each other. The Midianites slaughtered themselves in the confusion and darkness in their camp, while Gideon's 300 stood in their positions around the camp, holding a torch in one hand and a trumpet in the other. The enemy was defeated and they hadn't even drawn their swords. It should be clear to you by now that God is the hero of this story. Gideon is rightly memorialized in Hebrews 11, but especially in our self-absorbed, self-glorifying culture, it is important not to misunderstand the example he provides for us. Barry Webb is helpful. What we are seeing is not the product of self-belief and determination to succeed. Gideon is not a self-made man, but a testimony to God's perseverance with someone who knew himself to be inadequate who doubted again and again that God could or would do what he had promised to do through him, but whose recognition at last of the greatness and goodness of God released all his potential and allowed him to blossom into the leader God always intended him to be. So what are we seeing in, the, in Gideon's story? What portrait of faith does it provide for us? What can we hold on to and act on in our own journey of faith? By now, you shouldn't be surprised that what we're going to discover is truths about God in whom we're called to put our faith. Here's what I've boiled it down to. Our gracious God nurtures our fragile faith with his presence and promises so that we will trust and obey him. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what we are, a little flock weak and insignificant but he is with us by his spirit and our future is spectacular if you have not trusted yourself and your future to jesus the good news is god is the kind of god who comes to find us where we are and to reveal his love to us he'll receive you with all of your questions and doubts and he will strengthen your fragile faith as you obey him and if you're here today and you want to take those first steps of, of obedience today, we'd be glad to walk alongside you and to be your company in that journey. So please talk to myself or to Sheldon or to Sean or really to many, in, many people here you could talk to after the service. Our gracious God nurtures our fragile faith with his presence and promises so that we will trust and obey him. We all have battles yet to fight. But God is able and determined to make you stand for him. So let's continue, my friends, to fight the battle to please him in all things as he helps us to grow in the assurance of his presence and in confidence in his promises. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.